1: Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk.
2: Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Pure Energy Minerals returns to the program today with Patrick Highsmith, CEO Discussing their Clayton Valley Project in Nevada and their off-take agreement for lithium brine with Tesla Motors. James McDonald of Kootenay Silver discusses their high grades of silver in Mexico. Ken Berry of Northern Vertex speaks about their project in northwestern Arizona, slated to go into commercial production next fall with gold and silver assets. George Sanders, president of Goldcliffe Resource Corporation, will discuss recent developments at the company's Pine Grove project in Nevada. Peter Dasler of CanAlaska Uranium returns to the program. Jay Martin of Cambridge House International joins us with info about upcoming investment conferences. Also on the program today, we'll take a look at disruptive medical-related technology that's available now to the... Consumers, I'm speaking about CardioCom Solutions trading as EKGGF in the U.S. and EKG on the TSX Venture Exchange. How about a heart check pen that can immediately give you an on-the-spot EKG uploadable privately to your smartphone and to your doctor or medical facility? I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Patrick Highsmith, the CEO of Pure Energy Minerals. Pure Energy trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol PE.B. And in the U.S. as PEMIF, Pure Energy Minerals is an emerging leader in the development of innovative, resource-efficient mineral exploration and project development, notably with lithium. The company is focused on its 9,500-acre flagship lithium brine project located in Clayton Valley, Nevada. Lithium is used in a wide assortment of mobile devices, hybrid electric vehicles, and power storage. Pure Energy Minerals announced last Last year that the company had entered into an agreement with Tesla Motors for the potential supply of lithium hydroxide that they intend on producing from Clayton Valley, not far from the Tesla Gigafactory. Patrick, welcome back to the program and Happy New Year.
3: Happy New Year to you, Ellis. Thank you for having me.
2: Let's recap some of the successes for Pure Energy over the last year and look ahead to what we think 2017 is going to look like.
3: You know, it's a great time to recap a year. We've just had a big year at Pure Energy Minerals. We got a lot done. We drilled six holes on our Clayton Valley South project. We conducted pumping tests. We even completed a mini pilot plant where we actually had a proof of concept of this new technology that we hope will allow us to extract lithium without those huge, unsightly evaporations ponds often associated with these operations.
2: Patrick, even though we've been covering the lithium space for quite some time now, the general public is not fully up to speed yet as far as the relevance of the mineral beyond perhaps electric or hybrid cars, lithium-ion batteries, and things of that nature. That certainly is beginning to change, of course, but really energy storage and energy delivery as a whole is certainly the evolving story moving forward in my opinion. As I look around my studio here, I see nothing but wires connecting one device to another and a flurry of electrical plug-ins on two massive power strips. We live in a society now that wants to be wireless.
3: You know, the lithium story came on the scene for resource investors probably in about 2009, Alice, As you and I have discussed, I was one of the founders of Lithium One back then. It was palpable that things were going to change, and we think we made some good moves back then to go make some big lithium discoveries and alert the market to it, and we certainly got some traction and, and had a good story there for our investors in Lithium One. However, We were early frankly, the lithium battery industry was still small. The real applications of what this high powered metal could do were still relatively few and limited in scope. Whereas today, as investors are becoming more aware and hearing the word lithium on an almost daily basis, electric vehicles rolling out, growing at 60% year over year. I think you're right. I think lithium's role in the new economy, but also in the new grid, the new way we manage our energy is just really coming into people's visibility and and there's still a lot to learn about it, for
2: sure. Do you believe that this energy grid, one that's actually over 100 years old, if the system were to crash today and some sort of major blackout were to take hold, there's no energy storage system in place or any real measure of self-sufficiency to power America for any period of time, really? How important is energy storage via lithium, and how important will it be in the future?
3: You know, it is hard to believe how dependent we are, locked in position, really, in stationary position with our grid. And, you know, you and I have already used the, words, the grid, several times in this short interview, and we might as well plug a book that we've been discussing, The Grid, The Fraying Wires Between Americans and Our Energy Future, by Dr. Gretchen Bakke, and I'll probably reference a few facts in Dr. Bakke's book, but the topic she writes about there is exactly that. We have this grid, the utilities that we pay for the delivery of our power. The whole structure is based on a hundred-year-old approach to things, and yet it's clear As you point out, that Americans are rejecting wires in in almost every way we can, and we like to take our power with us, and now we're doing it in electric vehicles. And these things are very well facilitated by lithium, this lightest of all metals highest energy density of all metals, and the batteries are just keep getting better and better. And as of this moment, I think you're right, Ellis. If the grid goes down, we suffer immediately and profoundly for the duration of the blackout. We're lighting candles and what have you. But energy storage is on its way. And right now, as Dr. Bakke says in her book, 95% of so-called grid storage is pumped hydro, i.e. we, we pump water up into a lake in the mountains, which we can then Use its potential energy to run turbines and store power that way. But really, there are no large scale grid storage batteries just yet. There's a big one outside of Fairbanks that Dr. Bakke writes about and others in development. But what's exciting is lithium being so lightweight, having such energy density can not only help us store energy, as they do with the Tesla Powerwall, which is now being sold, of course, but we can take it with us. And that's where it's so important. And I think that electric vehicles are going to integrate more into our future super grids and smart grids than even we realize right now.
2: Well, the Tesla Powerwalls or inbuilt structures of that nature potentially remove us from the grid, which essentially was set up or may have become a monopoly to control the distribution of electricity, funneling funds into the coffers of the individuals and the consortiums who own the power plants?
3: You know, I think consumers, and especially those who are are big on technology, they don't want to be locked in place by access to power, and we've already hinted at that subject. We want to be mobile, we want to be wireless. And something like the Powerwall, as I understand it, really doesn't give you the ability to go off-grid, but what it does is it gives you a few minutes up to a few hours to redistribute when you make power, when you store it, and when you use it. So, for instance, you can make power on your roof with solar cells, store that for off-peak use, for instance, and those sorts of things. And in fact, what we learn when we really study the grid is there's more to it than that. There's huge problems with surges of power when we don't need it. For instance, in the middle of the day when solar is running at full speed, of course, that creates a whole lot of energy and that, in effect, becomes surplus. So what we really need is a more creative way to look at the grid, the business of managing our grid, and really that allows entrepreneurship and creativity to kick in. And perhaps the most interesting thing we see going on are not only the uses of things like Tesla's Powerwall, but experimentations with microgrids and so-called nanogrids where we see communities, universities, research centers integrating all possible and varied ways of making and storing power, cogeneration, anytime there's some heat in a process, we can capture that and use some of that to generate some power. We can use solar and wind. And, of course, we can interact with the grid as well. But that makes this miniature grid, this nanogrid, that much more redundant And, of course, it can begat savings for the users of these nano grids as well. And that's some of the neatest things that are going on right now that we can read about in Dr. Bakke's book. We see the experiments going on by the Department of Defense, various universities that can not only be self-sufficient for significant periods of time, but they can conserve energy and, in fact, of course, can sell energy back to the grid. But I think the big question is, can the grid in the United States modernize? Can the business of managing that grid modernize enough to really maximize these things so that that super future that we are all hoping for can really come to pass
2: then doesn't this archaic grid eventually become obsolete as some of these micro, mini, or community grids are set up around the country? Will we see a wireless electric world where you're passing through an area perhaps by motor vehicle or otherwise and all of your devices are powered up much like cell phone services connected as you travel through the air?
3: I think you're right, Ellis. I think that the concepts of the business of utilities and how they Price power and how they maintain the infrastructure have to be rethought. And what you're touching on are some of the concepts like wireless power transmission and electric vehicles basically being batteries on wheels. And, of course, very smart computers, as we know. If you take a look at the new Tesla Model S or Model X today, the onboard computer power is spectacular. And here you have this battery on wheels passing through, obviously, fields of energy. And if power transmission is wireless or going in that direction, it certainly changes things, and we know the business has to change. But let's not forget... A man named Nikola Tesla actually demonstrated the potential of transmitting power without wires over 120 years ago in 1893. He did that by lighting three light bulbs from more than 100 feet away. And that's pretty impressive stuff that uh, 120 years ago, we demonstrated the theory behind something could be done. And now we're seeing the entrepreneur's the Silicon Valley billionaires and others thinking of ways to uh, accomplish things that allow us to take our power with us. And I think electric vehicles with their lithium batteries on board are going to be a big part of that, and Dr. Bakke writes about that. Virtually every concept for a future grid that facilitates renewable sources of energy with variable rates of generation, all of those really rely on some level on electric vehicles. That is these batteries on wheels being plugged in and then being transported from point A to point B. A person goes home from work, they take their power with them when they drive their electric vehicle home, plug it in at a different point, and then of course it can be used by these smart grids to uh, regulate power flow. And I think that's key, Alice. I think too many of us think of the grid and the utilities behind it as defining our electrical industry in this country, for instance. And in fact, I think those definitions have to change a little bit, but we're certainly going to need companies out there that are delivering power, managing infrastructure, perhaps a different type of infrastructure indeed, but doing something that allows us to make use of technologies like lithium batteries to their full potential rather than just sort of nibbling around the edges like we're doing right now.
2: Of course we're going to need companies to provide lithium. Is there enough in the ground and is lithium the new gold? As investors, where should we consider putting our money right now?
3: Well, the resource industry has always got exciting new stories, a a big new gold discovery, a a big new lithium discovery. And I believe that that sort of excitement can drive entrepreneurialism and experimentation and and R&D. In the case of lithium, you know, there was just a Washington Post article that called it white gold. The Wall Street Journal called it white petroleum. That one doesn't really roll off the tongue, but that was one that happened earlier in 2016. But certainly there's this excitement and sort of hype sometimes around this commodity. But I can tell you this, having spoken with other executives in the lithium industry, not many of us really believe that this grid storage concept or even the full potential of electric vehicles has been factored into our models of supply and demand. But I can tell you this, while that's exciting for price, maybe in the near to medium term, in other words, a a strong demand and maybe not quite enough supply to get there just yet, certainly driving prices higher, and we see that today. However, over the long term, geologically, we know there's lots of lithium out there. We have to find new and better ways to extract it. We need to do so at a lower cost, so a new operation built today can withstand the price cycles that are inevitable. But we also need to do it in a sustainable way so that we're extracting lithium with a minimal impact on our water resources, working closely with the communities in which we operate, and, of course, mitigating uh, air quality and other environmental issues that can happen around these large mining operations, whether they be brine or hard rock. So I think geologically there's plenty of lithium, Ellis. I really believe that. However, it's certainly true that the incumbent producers have not been very good at bringing new production online, and I think the evidence for that is the rising prices. But, of course, the good news there is that many of us are rushing out to make new discoveries and to demonstrate their potential economics and, in fact, to get new projects built. And we have seen a couple of juniors come online with new lithium production over the last few years. And I think that's a good sign. And I think there's more of that to come. And I think from Dr. Bakke's book and other sort of timely media stuff out there right now, there are exciting times ahead for lithium's role in our grid and certainly in energy storage and most definitely in electric vehicles.
2: We have the Obama administration transitioning out and the Trump administration on deck. Let's talk about energy and lithium competing in a space that is very broad and a politique that will be very diverse.
3: Those are uh, big questions, hard questions. But you know, I've been in the mining industry for about 27 years now, and I've seen administrations come and go. I've worked in over 30 countries around the world. Sometimes for political reasons, we chose to be in or out of certain countries. In this case, in the United States, we have a robust, healthy mining industry in, in some sectors. However, we have been burdened with regulations. Many would say that that the sheer quantity and detail in the regulations has imposed a burden and has at least slowed things down. And that's certainly evidenced in how long it takes to get things permitted. So I think if we look at the last few years, the outgoing administration now, we do see a higher degree of regulations, some of which may have been needed, many of which probably were overkill or perhaps redundant. And so that's one element. The other, however, with something like lithium, is we have a potential green energy-related commodity here that there's only one producer in all of North. America That's our neighbor, of course, in Clayton Valley, Albemarle Corporation, at their Silver Peak mine. And yet we have a lot of resources of lithium in this country and in Canada, and yet those haven't been brought online or have been uh, slow to come online or slow to be developed. So there have been some incentives, as you know. We don't think the lithium industry per se needs a whole lot of subsidies from the government, but what we do need is a facilitative government, a facilitative permitting environment that allows us to get after these deposits, make these discoveries, and advance them through the various milestones on's towards production. And we believe that's important. And we believe a streamlining of regulations, as proposed by the incoming Trump administration, sounds attractive. And at the same time, it's clear that there's a momentum, perhaps, against a lot of government subsidies and things like that. But I think we in the mining industry have already learned our lessons in that regard. If you can't build a project that's economic through the price cycle, then you're likely to destroy value for your investors. And so at Pure Energy, our focus has been on cost-effective lithium production, the ability to get an operation into production that can weather the price cycles. And I think that's key for any future mining developments, whether they be large companies or small companies, paying attention to the bottom line. Now, it's certainly true that an administration in favor of green energy can make things move a little faster in some areas and can streamline regulations. But by and large, look at the value brought to investors, the jobs created, the expansion of the tax base when a new operation goes into production, and that sort of thing. And I think for the most part, the lithium industry is modern. We can adapt to the changing administrations in Washington or whichever national capital, and of course, the uh, funds to do exploration and development do move around the world and that pendulum swings based on the administration in place, as we've seen recently in Argentina, for instance, with the Macri administration coming in there, creating perhaps a more attractive geopolitical environment for investment there than has been the case in the recent few years. So these changes happen, and it just so happens that one of the uh, exciting elements of lithium is its topical nature as it relates to environmentally sustainable energy sources. So perhaps there's a little more spotlight on us at the moment, but I don't see this too much different than the rest of the mining industry in that regard.
2: Patrick, once again, another enlightening conversation with you. Thanks again for joining me today on the program.
3: Thank you again. I've been
2: speaking with Patrick Highsmith, CEO of Pure Energy Minerals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as PE.V and in the U.S. as PEMIF. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com and download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Join me for a conversation with George Sanders, president of Goldcliffe Resource Corporation, trading as GCFFF in the U.S. and GCN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Goldcliffe is a mine development company focused on near-term cash flow by applying the phased production business model to precious metals assets. The company is currently funding engineering and permitting activity on the Pine Grove Nevada Gold Project through a joint venture interest. Mr. Sanders was part of the team that successfully brought the Silvercrest Mine Santa Elena project to fruition as a mine, selling it off to First Majestic Silver. George, welcome back to the program.
4: Thanks, Ellis. Always a pleasure.
2: You just released some important news. Let's hear about it.
4: Certainly. It was the results of a small surface sampling program that we did. To put that program in context, it was very short and very quick couple of day reconnaissance program but it was very important to us if it returned values which it did among the values that came back to us were gold assays that are consistent with our resource grade 1.37 grams. Seven of 16 samples returned values above a half a gram. One of those samples was as high as 10.9 grams. The range was uh, half a grams 0.63. .77, .77, seven, and then three samples that were right around the uh, actual or grade 1.31, 1.52, and 1.91. We were very excited to receive these because they're important to our approach to the Pine Grove property and to our business model.
2: What's the next step going forward here? Will there be any more testing, George? At what point do you say, this is what we've got, let's execute the next part of our plan?
4: For this particular area, we won't be doing any further work on it in the near term. As you have talked to me previously, and your listeners that have heard those conversations would know, we follow the phased production business model, which is a fancy way of saying bootstrap something or start small and build out of cash flow. So if that model is going to be successful, you have to have something to build towards if you start small. And particular to the Pine Grove project, the resource that's been outlined to date, which will make a nice smaller mine, open pit heap leach, for a few years, it is a modest size resource. And so we felt that it was important to demonstrate our view of the Pine Grove property, which is that the resource outlined to date is only a small portion of what we think is ultimately going to be found there. But because of the model, we're going to focus on what we started. So this sampling and the numbers that we released yesterday simply validates our view and allows us to show to our shareholders and to prospective investors that indeed there are other areas on the property away from from the zones that have been drilled to the resource level that are highly prospective. Clearly, this zone, which is on the Southern Cross load claim, away from the patented claims, has demonstrated that it has a lot of potential. For the remainder of at least the first half of the year, we'll be focusing on the detailed permitting and preparation of the plan of operations for submission to the state and federal regulators.
2: You had alluded to in a previous interview that you were in the process of identifying lower grade but still significant grade resource outside the primary zone, correct?
4: correct, and rather than using the term lower grade, I'd probably prefer to use the term bulk tonnage grade, because the bulk tonnage grades, or lower grades as you say, at Pine Grove are actually a significant amount higher than most of the open pit heap leach grade being mined in the state and other parts of southwest U.S. and indeed Mexico. Many of the deposits either currently mined or under development are grades quite a bit under a gram. So between 0.6 grams and a gram, and our resource grade is 1.37. As I've just said, the numbers we released are consistent with that grade. So rather than refer to it as low grade, I think we'll call it bulk tonnage grade because actually it's quite a bit higher than the normal open pit heap leach grade. The other thing that's interesting, and we did talk in another conversation about high grade at Pine Grove, and indeed one of our samples comes in at just under a third of an ounce. So definitely some high-grade kicking around in the system. I'll simplify, if I could, Ellis, a little bit of geology for just a second because that has us most excited about this southern cross zone. We knew that this area had been sampled in the early 90s by tech, so it had some potential. And our view when we came into the Pine Grove project was this would be a really low budget, and it was less than $10,000. It's a geologist, a couple of days for him to look at this and the cost of assaying, and that's basically it. One of the Lincoln geologists went to locate the previous sample couldn't really find it, was in the area, saw the host rock granodiorite, but it was really what we call fresh, and geologists don't like fresh rock. They like rock that's crushed up, has staining in it, it's all fractured, because that's how mineralizing fluids emplace the precious metals. So they didn't see any of that in his first day of reconnaissance. He came back, had a conference with the project manager, and said, gee, this doesn't look like much. Well, go and sample it anyway. Brought the samples back. They both agreed that, gee, there didn't look like there was anything worth sending to the assay lab, but go ahead and send it anyway because that's what we had asked them to do. And the numbers that came back were quite shocking To both of those geologists. So they took another look at it, and what they described was very inconspicuous hairline fracturing that you might not see on first investigation. Why are we excited about that? That tells us that the granodiorite all over the property needs to be looked at carefully as opposed to just the granodiorite that has an old prospect pit on it or has some staining or some fracturing nearby. So it really opens up anywhere that rock is on the property and there are a lot of those places. It opens that up for future prospecting. So that's pretty exciting for us.
2: Well that's exciting and it certainly lends us to believe that there might be several revenue streams potentially going forward and that's what shareholders like to see.
4: Well exactly the current resource at 700 750 tons a year that will support a four year mine life so any of these other occurrences they don't have to be millions of tons half a million tons a million and a half tons that's going to add additional year and a half two, three years of mine life that makes all the difference in the value of the project and the value to the shareholders.
2: George, thanks so much for the update. Again, I appreciate you joining me today on the program.
4: Terrific. Thanks again, Ellis.
2: I've been speaking with George Sanders, president of Gold Cliff Resource Corporation, trading as GCFFF in the U.S. and GCN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com, and go to goldcliffe.com for more information on the company. I'm Alice Martin. Joining me now for a conversation with Eric Fear, the president of Silvercrest Metals, trading in the U.S. as SVCMF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as SIL.B. Silvercrest Metals is a Vancouver-based precious metals exploration company that is focused on new discoveries, value-added acquisitions, and targeting production in Mexico's historic precious metals districts. Their Las Chispas mine in Sonora State, Mexico promises to be a potentially highly prolific play. Eric Welcome back to the program.
5: Ellis, thanks for having me on again. Always a pleasure.
2: Late in 2016, you announced you were beginning the Phase Two Drill Surface and Underground Drill Program. What's the current status of that?
5: We actually started it in December. We did do some work over the holidays. The uh, Phase 2 program is in two parts. Part 1 is the drill program, which is about between six to 10,000 meters, depending on success this year. And that's both surface and underground drilling. We, so far to date, have completed about 2,000 meters of that. Most of that's the surface. Of that 2,000, there's a couple hundred meters of underground drilling. Drilling at Bobby Canora currently. Looking for our first result for phase two drilling to come out sometime in February. I don't like to put one or two holes out. We're going to put these things out in five to ten hole kind of batches as they come through the assays. Drilling is focusing on establishing our maiden resource later this year. Also drill testing the Bobby Canora target, which historically was the largest producer in the district. This district has laid dormant for the last 75 years and has never been drilled as far as we can tell. So we're the first to drill in this
2: district. How do we have these historic targets that no one has touched and you're about to find out what's in the ground there?
5: Well, it's uh, been the historic industry standard that you drive on grade and you drill for structure. That's what they did historically. The discovery at Las Chispas was made in 1640 by a Spanish general. A lot of unrest with Apaches up until the uh, late 1800s. There was some mining that was done in the district before the late 1800s, and it was driven on grade, nothing else. We found no evidence of any drill collars on surface or underground. Usually you go into these districts and there's a pile of core sitting somewhere. There's no evidence of any of that. So again, drive on grade and drill on structure. They weren't too concerned with structure.
2: What is the second part of that Phase Two program?
5: The second part of the Phase Two program, the critical part, is the ongoing underground rehabilitation of approximately 11.5 kilometers of old workings. So we're reestablishing these workings, and we're getting critical data geologically and from a potential mineability of high-grade underground. The mineralization, as far as we know, and from a mineability standpoint, had a historic cutoff grade of somewhere between 500 to 1 kilo of silver. There's quite a bit of material that still remains intact underground in the 300 to 500 grams per ton silver plus gold. We're excited about seeing the results from that from underground and we'll continue probably on a monthly basis to refresh our rehabilitation with new access and some more results as they come out. Not only do we have the underground results coming out, but you'll see just more of this underground rehabilitation. This rehabilitation, just to remind the general public, is exploration rehabilitation. From a mining standpoint, there need to be more development. You could actually use a lot of the underground workings right now for that development if you wished, so just keep that in mind. We've considered that there's also quite a bit of lower grade material associated with the underground workings and some wider zones. There may be potential for some bulk lower grade in the future. We'll see how that works out in our design.
2: The lower grades can still be substantial, right?
5: And uniquely too, most of these districts I've been to around in Mexico in my career, and the dumps and the tailings have usually been scavenged and taken to smelters in the past, and Los Chispas, most of that stuff still remains. So there's quite a bit of high-grade material that's actually just sitting on the surface right now that could be potentially re- Processed in the future.
2: I've been speaking with Eric Fear, the president of Silvercrest Metals, trading in the US as SVCMF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as SIL.B. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com, or listen to the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes and TuneIn Radio. Join me for a recent conversation with Peter Dassler, President and CEO of CanAlaska Uranium Limited, trading in the U.S. under the symbol CVVUF, and on the TSX Venture Exchange as CVV. CanAlaska is an exploration company in Canada's Athabasca Basin, known for some of the highest grades of uranium in the world with 18 projects of their own, holding one of the largest land positions in the region, comprising of up to 1,800 square miles. Canalaska shares a joint venture with the major uranium producer, Cameco. Peter, welcome back to the program, and Happy New Year.
6: Thanks, Alice. Uh, happy New Year to uh, all your clients. We're certainly looking forward to uh, a lot of interesting things happening for Canalaska.
2: What can we look forward to in 2017 across the world, especially in North America with uranium exploration and potential production? What does that market look like to you?
6: Well, we are seeing a big change in the last two weeks in the uranium scene. We've seen a lot of uh, companies' share price start to increase. Our price has been increasing basically because of uh, uranium. People are now expecting those build of nuclear reactors in Asia to start influencing the price, the spot price of uranium. It's been terribly low for the last six months. It's been driven down by all sorts of outside forces. But at least prices, $20 a pound for uranium, none of the producers are making money. And so uh, we see the price moving back up, and there's lots of expectation for that spot price to double to be in the $40 to $50 range. We're seeing indications on that. Canberco's share price has moved. A number of the juniors are starting to move. Our price is moving. So there's a groundswell of uranium interest out there, and I think that's going to be very good for Canalaska.
2: And how competitive is uranium in the energy space overall?
6: Uranium-produced power is... Only bettered by uh, perhaps a uh, hydro and uh, cheap gas at the moment for long-term large supply of power. Nuclear power is very cheap. It's also very relocatable. China is building a number of nuclear power plants now because they can build them near to their cities and provide electricity directly at four, 6 to $0.08 cents a kilowatt hour. Coal mines, which may be able to produce the same amount of power, but they're located thousands of miles away from the cities. If you're producing electricity there, you've got line loss to get it all the way back to the city. It's very flexible and with the new nuclear power plants uh, we're seeing a lot of efficiency. We're also going to see smaller nuclear power plants built for much less dollar value than the the larger ones and I think that's a a big thing. Uh, You're even seeing uh, Warren Buffett into that, uh, Bill Gates are into that, uh, sponsoring those uh, activities for smaller nuclear power plants that you relocate into any city, any town and uh, provide very cheap electricity.
2: So is the market for uranium coming out of the Athabasca global, or is it strictly North America?
6: The Athabasca provides about 20% of the world's uranium uh, every day. That's likely to increase with new mines coming on stream. These are very, very high-grade mines. They're 100 times richer than virtually every other mine in the world that's producing uranium. So we've seen a a number of discoveries over the last eight years in the Athabasca. As the price moves up, those mines can come into production, and uh, I think the Athabasca is capable of supplying probably 30 to even 40 percent of the world's uranium on a daily basis. It's because of the grade, the low cost of mining, and the prolific supplies uh, that we're starting to see in, in local mineral deposits uh, that are being discovered in the Athabasca.
2: How do you expect your arrangement with major uranium producer Cameco to pan out during the coming year?
6: Well, we've got a very exciting uh, deal with Cameco. They're investing $12.5 million into one of our exploration zones, which are a Immediately next door to their largest producing mine, that's MacArthur River. They made a high grade discovery very close to our property boundary. We're expecting that in March, April this year, they'll be in there doing a series of drill holes to test a target that we've got the first drill hole into now. We think we have the opportunity for a major discovery on that zone. And again, we're going to benefit in that case from all of the infrastructure in that area. We'll be uh, less than 10 miles away from their largest operation with all that infrastructure the indications we have at this stage is that any target that we develop in that area that could be very large.
2: Well, Peter, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks again for joining us today on the program.
6: Thanks
7: very much, Alice.
2: I've been speaking with Peter Dassler, President and CEO of CanAlaska Uranium, trading of the U.S. as CVVUF. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Listen to the Ellis Martin Report in its entirety on iTunes, and on your TuneIn Radio app. We offer expert opinions only. Find them
1: on our website, ellismartinreport.com.
2: Join me for a conversation with Jay Martin, President of Cambridge House International, Canada's premier conference company. Cambridge House is presenting the CanTech Investment Conference on January 18th, 2017 in Toronto and the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference in Vancouver on January 22nd and 23rd of 2017. You have two sizable conferences coming up in January. The CanTech Conference, a technology show in Toronto on January 18th and then the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference on January 22nd and 23rd. Let's talk about the CanTech Conference first.
8: This is our fourth year with the CanTech Investment Conference. This has become Canada's largest tech conference, and it's really a cross-section of the whole industries. We don't focus on any specific sectors within tech or subsectors. The goal of this conference is to showcase what's coming next in Canadian technology. We look for up-and-coming companies that maybe aren't so well-known on the street but have great promise, and look to give some generous returns to investors in the next year, specifically 2017. We'll have about 60 companies on the floor. We'll see about 3,000 and investors on the show. It's a one-day event, jam-packed, very exciting, very busy.
2: Specifically, with regard to the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference, a legacy conference for the sector, we can get a real idea, a pulse, if you will, for the resource sector for the year, for 2017, just by attending this particular conference, Jay. That's
8: how we see it. You know, I really... I'm always looking at what happens in January and then, you know, there's like a three, four month lull until TDAc but it really does set the year off and it's been a bit quiet the last couple of months. We're expecting excitement in January.
2: How many companies will be exhibiting for this event?
8: Yes just shy of 240. What does the
2: breakdown look like for exhibiting companies, whether it be gold, silver, base metals, sustainable such as lithium, cobalt, etc.?
8: It's definitely a wide stroke. We're seeing an emergence of companies like lithium, cobalt, even vanadium, magnesium, you know, these, these battery tech and energy storage minerals. There's still quite a small percentage in the resource game. And the Vancouver show for sure is still maybe, as a benchmark, 20 to 25% gold companies for sure. However, there's a large population of silver investors. I'm very bullish on silver right now and a handful of very strong uranium companies. It's really across. We've got the whole industry there. And investors right now are quite keen on, I guess, like the unloved minerals. Silver's getting a lot of attention. Uranium's getting a lot of attention, but we'll see everything.
2: I've been speaking with Jay Martin, president of Cambridge House International. Once again, the CanTech Investment Conference is going to be held in Toronto on January 18th, 2017, and the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference will follow on January 22nd and 23rd. Do you have questions that
1: need answers about our sponsor companies? Contact them. Find the logos of all our sponsors on the homepage of our website. Click on them and learn more about our client companies.
2: EllisMartinReport.com Join me for a conversation with Ken Berry, the President and CEO of Northern Vertex Mining, trading in the U.S. as NHVCF, Northern Vertex Mining is actively engaged in the development of its flagship Moss Mine Gold Silver Project in the historic Oatman Mining District in Northwest Arizona. Over the past six years, the company has worked diligently to establish a substantial gold-silver resource and is now focused on advancing the project to commercial mine construction and future gold-silver production. Ken, welcome to the program. If you don't mind, give listeners an overview of the company, and let's also talk today about Northern Vertex's recent news.
9: Northern Vertex is in the process of developing the Moss Mine. We're looking to put the Moss Mine from startup right into production over the next seven months. We've mobilized equipment to the mine site. We'll start construction on the road systems and the heap leach pad. This really follows up on a mining facility that we conducted over a period of about a year and a half that produced 4,000 ounces of gold and 20,000 ounces of silver, and we're now taking the project into commercial production. We're looking to have an annual production of about 42,000 ounces per year. This is something that's going to be very profitable. We're looking at an internal rate of return of close to 50% and a payback of just over two years.
2: You just completed an oversubscribed private placement. You also selected BDW International to drill a 3,000-meter program.
9: We've just closed a $1.3 million financing to conduct some exploration, which will demonstrate that we have additional ounces on-site and that this project can grow beyond that 42,000-ounce production profile. But in parallel to that, we've also recently closed $7.3 million financing in a convertible-to-venture and also a $20 million financing with Sprott Lending. The financing is in place to commence construction and really get this project underway here in the next couple weeks.
2: These are pretty sizable partners. Now, Sprott's very aggressive within the resource sector.
9: Sprott has been very supportive of mining projects, and they're really a leader in the field. We previously had Macquarie Bank as our sort of lender in terms of a, a receiving a credit-approved term sheet, and then shortly after, we had Sprott Lending come to us, and they recognized the profitability of this project and were successful at winning our business, and we signed that $20 million U.S. facility with them just in the last month, and that's given us the ability now to start construction.
2: No matter what the market does, you have a market for the gold you're going to be producing.
9: As we saw with the test mining, where we produced the 4,000 ounces of gold and 20,000 ounces of silver, there's always a market for precious metals. My belief is we've seen a little bit of a pullback in precious metals here in the last month or two. That's just a buying opportunity, really. When you look at the overall markets over, since about 2011 to late in 2015, the precious metals markets pulled back over 85% in terms of equities in the marketplace for junior and development stage companies. So this is really a buying opportunity in our eyes to look at the precious metal sector. As you pointed out, there's always a market for gold and silver.
2: What do you estimate your production cost to be? We're
9: looking at a cash cost of just over $415 per ounce. Our all-in costs will be approximately $668 per ounce. That's in the lower quartile for producing mining companies. We're seeing gold trade just under $1,200. Dollars announced now. If gold were to pull back in that $1,000 range or lower, projects like ours will still be in production while others are shutting down. So in terms of competitive advantage, that lower all-in cost is a real important figure.
2: Doing business in Arizona, which is a great jurisdiction in addition to the built-in infrastructure, must be contributing to those low production costs.
9: Well, as you pointed out, location is very important in a lot of different businesses, but in mining particularly, this is a cost savings for Northern Veritech and our capital expenditures, we're looking at capital expenditures of about $33 million. Our location is one and a half hours south of Las Vegas and about three hours west of Phoenix. In terms of cost savings, we don't have to build a mining camp, which many remote projects would have to build a mining camp, and they can be anywhere from $8 to $12 million to put a camp together for a mining operation. We don't have to carry a a lot of inventory to support our operations. We've got easy access to the International Airport at Las Vegas, Phoenix just to the east and we also have an international airport in the town of Bullhead City which is only about 20 minute drive from our mine site. That cost savings on having our employees work close to their homes and live with their families, and just the overall happiness of our employees is a huge benefit.
2: I've been speaking with Ken Berry, President and CEO of Northern Vertex Mining, trading in the U.S. as NHVCF. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation now with James McDonald, President and CEO of Kootenay Silver. Kootenay Silver trades in the U.S. as KOOYF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol KTN. Kootenay Silver is a Canadian and Mexican-based silver exploration company actively engaged in the development of three major silver projects in Mexico, including the La Cigarra project in Chihuahua, Mexico, and the Promontorio and La Negra silver projects in Sonora, Mexico. The company has a leading growth profile highlighted by one of the largest silver asset bases in Mexico, and it carried interest to commercial production with a world-leading mining partner. Kootenay currently has two drill programs in progress in Mexico and a combined 43-101 silver asset base of over 140 million ounces of contained silver. Forward-looking statements may be included going forward. Today, we join Mr. McDonald on site at the La Cigar Silver Project. Jim, welcome back to the program.
7: Thanks, Alice. Happy to be here.
2: You're at the La Cigar Silver Project in Chihuahua State, Mexico with some exciting news for us. Feel free to share it with us, Jim.
7: Yeah, I am. I'm right on site. Came down, we put news out here on the first 11 drill holes on our ram structure on the La Segara deposit. It's the very first time that structure's ever been drilled. We can trace it for uh, 3,400 meters, 3.4 kilometers, and we've tested only 400 meters at that. What we're showing here is that we've hit good mineralization in 9 out of 11 holes. We've got consistent silver mineralization in multiple zones uh, along that entire 400 meters strike length. So that bodes really well for adding resources there. We four hundred meters of strike, we're already building something up. When you look at the big picture and the trend we're on, we're on the extension of a mineral trend that comes right out of the operating Santa Barbara and San Francisco de Oro mines immediately to our south. That trend goes under the valley cover to the south of us, and when it emerges on the other side of the valley, it comes right up into our ram and solidad structures and on into our deposit area. So we're working on the same mineral trend, same kind of structure, and they're mining down a 1,000-meter depth there. So this kind of start here, we're wide open on the ram structure along strike. To hit silver mineralization consistently along 400 meters right out of the gate is very promising start and you know gives us a lot of confidence we're going to be adding ounces here and you know we've got potential for some real good high grade ounces or shoots forming along this trend
2: we are potentially talking about ounces per ton though i'm looking at some of these drill highlights from the ram zone and they're very very strong
7: you know we've got some great grades there to the start right out of the gate. We're getting up to 200 grams per ton. You're talking in that sort of case, 6 ounce, 7 ounce per ton range when you talk about ounces. Yeah, it's just the beginning. We're coming back. We're still currently drilling. We're moved over to a structure to the east. Uh, in the new year, we're going to come back to the ram structure. We're, we're going to step out in a wide space drill setups and just have a look at that whole trend and then come back and close in on the results we get from that. So the new year is going to be a lot of follow-up work. I think it's going to be very exciting for us and not only that target but the additional targets that remain to be drilled in the immediate area of the deposit itself and then we're going to get onto the deposit in the new year and finish drilling it off which has not been done yet.
2: Nothing is certain of course but the future looks really bright with regard to the La Cigar Silver project.
7: The future looks really good. What we're dealing with here is a district-scale project. We're in an established district already. The Perel district, broader scope of the district, there's been some 2 billion ounces of silver discovered or produced. There's two producing mines in the district still, and those are the two mines that sit immediately to our south, south of our project. So we're basically extension of that system, and we've got multiple Target areas on the property that haven't even been drilled yet. The deposit itself already has 52.5 million ounces of measured indicated silver and another 11.5 million ounces in the inferred category. It's open in both strike directions, it's open to depth, and then in the immediate surrounding area there are eight undrilled targets, and we're just starting to have a look at those, and that's what these RAM results are all about. And for a first pass right out of the gate, that's very, very encouraging numbers that we're getting. And we're just scratching the surface here.
2: I've been speaking with James McDonald, the president and CEO of Kootenay Silver, trading as KOOYF in the U.S. and KTN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Do you
1: have questions that need answers about our sponsor companies? Contact them. Find the logos of all our sponsors on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's Ellis Martin Report com
2: high quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to resource world magazine published six times a year resource world features in-depth articles on mineral area plays commodities of interest and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts geologists and mining journalists go to
1: resourceworld.com to find out more We asked that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com.
2: Etienne Grima is the CEO of Cardiocom Solutions Incorporated, trading in the U.S. as EKGGF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as EKG. Cardiocom's specialization is in the software engineering of computer-based electrocardiogram, or ECG, management and reporting software. This software permits physician interpretations of ECGs and supports private and public payer fee-for-service billings. ECGs are electrical recordings of the heart, and performing an ECG is one of the most common diagnostic tests. Over the past three years, CardioCom Solutions has successfully launched technologies that enable the use of new medical devices and communication portals, utilizing Internet and cellular-based technologies for the recording, transmission, and viewing of ECGs. CardioCom's ECG Management Solutions can now service both medical and consumer markets internationally. The HeartCheck Pen handheld ECG device is the only device of its kind cleared by the FDA for consumer use. Etienne, welcome to the program. Thank you. If you wouldn't mind, give us a brief overview of your company.
10: CardioCom Solutions has been around for a few years as a provider of ECG, electrocardiogram monitoring technologies in hospitals and doctors' offices and even some labs that run ECG services for hospitals all over the world. So the ECG, just for those who don't know, is the way that you measure the activity of your heart by looking at the electrical activity through your skin with those wires and electrodes that are put on your body. And it shows a waveform that you see in movies and you see on shows that indicate whether your heart is healthy or not. And we manage how devices measure that from people and how it shows it to people. People who could be consumers, people who could be doctors, people who could be healthcare professionals.
2: So you've essentially taken technology that has been successfully utilized in hospitals and healthcare facilities and brought it to the consumer with a large potential upside, and let's stress that this is much more unique than simply wearing an Apple Watch or something of that nature.
10: The way that we looked at this was, how can we bring a disruptive and novel technology to the informed consumer? People who care about their health, who may have problems accessing medical care, either because of insurance, or distances to travel, or even just the ability to leave their house. And what we decided to do was to particularly consumerize the most popular medical test done, the ECG, and to provide people a straightforward and reliable way of reading their own ECGs at home, or wherever they might be, it's a completely mobile solution, and allow them to capture their recording whenever they wish, save it in such a way that it's acceptable to the medical world, and then they can show it to their doctor either at a regular visit or if they want it to run to emergency or if they dial 911. And the important thing in all of this is that when you don't feel well, it would be great to capture why you're not feeling well. Look at a medical test that can allow you to get a snapshot of what's happening so then you can show it or play it back to your doctor later whenever you get a chance to see them. And Fitbits and Apple Watches, they offer value in people monitoring their health, but they're not medical devices. So really what you need to be is cleared as a class two medical device. So they're not. They're a consumer product, a wellness product. And they have a value in that they're a surrogate measure for your health. If the numbers are way off, there's probably something off in your body. If the numbers look normal, you're probably within the norm. But that's it. So the idea was, how do we help people who do things like buy Fitbits because they are interested in monitoring their health. How do we help them to get a more credible read on what's happening? Are they healthy? Are they not healthy? Are they feeling bad because there's something going on with their heart? Or maybe it's a rule out. Maybe there's another reason why they're feeling bad. So we looked at this as an opportunity to consumerize ECGs, give people an easy, cost-effective, reliable way of capturing recordings when they need to do it, not necessarily when they're showing up in a merge or the doctor's putting a device on them, and then they can play it back to their doctors, and that should allow a faster cycle time for them to have their problems identified, which is better for everybody in the long run and cost-effective to the healthcare system. What makes
2: Cardiocom special, making it stand out in the biotech or healthcare space?
10: We have been in this business longer than anyone else. We have FDA clearances, Health Canada clearances with overseas markets. We have no complaints or warnings against us, which is not at all anything any of our competitors can say. We have a solid background in providing doctors and hospitals with a stable and reliable way of monitoring hundreds of thousands of patients over many years for their cardiac health. We believe that this platform of credibility and reliability makes us unique in our capacity to roll out trusted solutions that can be used by consumers for any number of health monitoring requirements, whether it's to make sure you're well, whether it's to manage an illness, whether it's to look out after a loved one. And with our connections, our global connections and our networks with multiple device companies, we think we can bring some pretty novel and interesting technologies to the consumer market at a variety of price points and a variety of use utilities to meet anybody's needs, whatever they might be, anywhere in the world. And all of this is backed by an ECG reading service that can help people to understand what they're seeing if they want to know. I think we're poised for an amazing 2017, and I'm very excited to be a part of this company. And I love sharing the story, and I thank you for the opportunity.
2: Etienne, it's been a great pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining me today.
10: Thank you very much. I've been speaking with
2: Etienne Grima, the CEO of Cardiocom Solutions Incorporated, trading in the U.S. as EKGGF, and now the TSX Venture Exchange as EKG. Find a link to Cardiocom's website on our website, EllisMartinReport.com. You just
1: heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com.
0: Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com.